0: We are going to have a very interesting episode as we are diving to exercise oncology, which is the use of exercise in cancer prevention, control, and survivorship. This episode is about cancer, but it helps us understand in general how beneficial movement is for humans and how it can be used even in situations when you intuitively think individuals should not exercise. And we have amazing guest for this episode. She is the Associate Director of Population Sciences at Penn State University College of Medicine and jointly serves as full professor at University of Pennsylvania, US. She has published more than 240 peer-reviewed scientific papers and has had over $25 million in funding for her research. She is one of the most cited authors in the field of physical activity and her popular book, Moving through cancer is a landmark in exercise oncology. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Professor Catherine Smith. Welcome, Catherine.
1: My goodness, I, I must be Methuselah to have done all of that. <laughs> thank you so much for that kind introduction.
0: Yeah, thank you for taking time for this podcast. So, So if we start, how did you came to specialize in
1: exercise oncology? So, um, I actually did my PhD with, uh, a cardiologist, um, and was, uh, you know, trained in, uh, looking at the benefits of exercise for, um, uh, cardiovascular disease prevention and other, you know, treatment outcomes, as well as obesity treatment and prevention and metabolic disease. And, um, I was... Uh, funded to do my very first randomized controlled trial, um, in midlife women, uh, to see if we could, um, prevent the increases in, um, in fat that occur in women as they age, um, by doing twice weekly strength training. And, uh, so I was, I was headed down that direction and doing that trial. And, um, I was, you know, sort of had in the back of my mind, um that you know a lot had already been done in these areas and not that there wasn't more work to do, but a lot of work had already been done. The landmark studies had been published. Um, and so the question was, you know, where, you know, what's my niche? Right? And I had a faculty mentor, I was a postdoc at the time, and a faculty mentor who asked me to consider um doing some reading and seeing whether I might be interested in working in cancer. And so, you know, when you're a postdoc, you have time to, you know, just, you know, stop what you're doing and, and do a deep literature search. So I did, um, and it didn't take that long because the literature just wasn't that deep in exercise and cancer at the time. And I came across a paper that was written by Dr. Ann McTiernan from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle in 1995 and I came across the paper in, um, I guess about 1999, 2000. And, um, and the paper was a call to action and it was a call to action to people with exactly my type of training to say, Hey, please, please think about coming over here with us in the oncology field and, uh, working on exercise and cancer, because, um, there is an awful lot to do and you'd really be getting in on the ground floor of the field. So, um, so I, my next, the next, next grant I wrote was the, to the Susan G. Komen Foundation. And I got the grant and started to work in exercise oncology and never looked back. So it was really all about literally one paper that changed my, uh, my direction of research. I was bold and wrote Dr. McTiernan an email and said, I really liked your paper and I'd like to take up your call to action. Any tips? And she was so kind and she sent me some of her grants to read and, uh, read some of mine and was helpful to me in ways that are now as a senior investigator, just kind of unbelievable how much she did. Um, and, uh, you know, she was so important to the founding of this field. So, um, I got really lucky with some mentorship too, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's that's a nice nice story, and I saw your presentation in YouTube at at Noble Conference, and in that you provided a historical pen, uh, perspective for cancer and exercise oncology. Would you like to share share that that perspective? Of sure, history?
1: absolutely. I actually think it's kind of fascinating. I, I got the opportunity to look at this history because of the um, the first book that I wrote, which was called Exercise Oncology which was a, a compilation. It was, and I edited this book and we got the best and the brightest in the field to contribute chapters. And it was intended to bring together, um, you know, what do we know right now uh, about exercise and cancer? And um, so I wrote as an introductory chapter, a history of exercise oncology. And so I learned that the the uh, phrase was coined in 2007, by probably Carrie Cornier, um, and, uh, who's in Canada, University of Alberta. Um, and, uh, if you go back in history and I, you know, I did sort of a deep dive to sort of say, you know, how far back can you go and find literature that, uh, helps us to connect exercise and cancer? And the answer, um, as far as my literature search, uh, revealed was 1911. There was a paper by Dr. Ewing, um, that showed that, um, uh you know it was and uh, in the beginnings of the industrial revolution and so there were people who were sort of upper class people who didn't have to do manual labor anymore and then there were people who uh, were still doing manual labor and what they noticed was that cancer rates were higher in people who were more sedentary um and who were thus more likely to be obese um so that was that was sort of very early days but there's this very interesting smattering of papers that have in, in animal models that happens throughout the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and even 60s um, that, um, you know, many of which um, entered into the question of exercise and cancer by uh, assuming that exercise would be bad for the animal, that exercise would be a stressor for the animal. And there was one particular set of, of uh studies that was done um uh, at a, a cancer institute in um uh in philadelphia not not Penn, um uh and uh you know they they said you know we used exercise as a stressor and we were interested in showing that stress causes cancer and so imagine their surprise when repeatedly in their studies what they found was that the exercised animals were less likely to develop cancer so uh, so there were all of these, you know, observations in animals, um, and, you know, I found these, you know, sort of recommendations for the exercises for the patient mastectomy patient from Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, from the 1950s with, you know, a pictured woman with an A-line skirt, you know, like the bathroom, you know, you think of the, you know, what you see as a, as the picture of a outline of a woman and the bathroom door, um, at least in the U S and, um, and, uh uh, you know, they, they had, you know, recommendations of, um, uh, all of these range of motion activities and, uh, and swimming, which frankly is still really outstanding advice. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, and then, uh, they're really, um, the first human trials of exercise and cancer were done by, um, Winningham and McVicker. Who were nursing researchers at the Ohio State University and they did these studies in the 1980s and um, you know when when I think about what they did what they were uh, were uh, you know undertaking and the time that they were doing it it was radical they were asking women who were undergoing chemotherapy to do vigorous uh, cycling exercise uh, stationary cycling exercise um, during your chemotherapy um, and, you know, vigorous, vigorous exercise, you know, not, not just taking a walk, you know, um, it was actually, you know, I mean, the recommendations now would, would not have us prescribe vigorous exercise at that time. Um, but, uh, you know, what they found was that it was helpful for nausea. It was helpful for fatigue. It was helpful for anxiety. It helped with changing, you know, body composition in a positive way. So, um, but then in 1996, there was uh, a review of the literature. This just cracks me up today. I mean, just to think about the thousands of papers that exist now, but there was a review that was published by Carrie Cornier and uh, Christine Friedenreich in 1996 um, that reviewed all four <laughs> all four of the clinical trials that had been done to date, and they concluded, not surprisingly, that more research was needed. Um, and that there were, you know, limitations to the research that had been done, um, but they were, um, uh, you know, prescient, uh, both of them. And they um, uh, even then were starting to uh, see the value of um, uh, creating a kind of a, a, a way of organizing our thinking about exercising in cancer. And so developed not long thereafter something called the Peace Framework. Um, and that's taken different names at different times, but PEACE is physical exercise across the cancer experience. And although it has revised by name and, and a little bit over time, the basic idea is that um, if we are going to try to study exercise in the realm of cancer, then we really need to think of it in different buckets of t- the, the cancer experience. So there's primary prevention, And then there's thinking about, um, what we might do for somebody who's been diagnosed but hasn't started treatment, which we now call prehabilitation. What we would do for people who are currently undergoing treatment, immediate post treatment and long term survivorship or palliation and end of life care. So, um, you know, so they, they drew that out, you know, way before there were the trials to tell us that in fact, yes, we needed to be paying attention to time course. So um, it's kind of remarkable what they what they came up with. Um, by 2010 we had um the first ACSM roundtable uh guidelines for um for exercise and cancer and um and they were they were um uh uh in retrospect um uh, really mostly about what you shouldn't do. <laughs> um they were mostly about safety. Um, and trying to prove to the clinician and patient that it was safe to exercise during treatment. Um, the more recent ACSM guidelines from 2018 are more specific, much more specific about, you know, what kind of exercise one would do for very specific outcomes. And there are additional um, guidelines coming in uh, in 2022 um, from other organizations. So I'm not sure I'm at liberty to say, but, um, uh, stay tuned. There are more guidelines coming for exercise.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Fibion, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity, and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate, and vigorous intensity. In addition to scientific accuracy, Fibian provides automatically produced and easy to understand reports for research participants. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at slash research. Fibian, from researchers to researchers. So, So, basically, quite interesting points in the history. First, it was thought that it's a stressor and that it increases chances of getting cancer so there's been some paradigm shifts do you see some parallels of history of exercise oncology to prevention and treatment of other health conditions i think with many other things it has gone in a little bit similar way do you do you see any any parallels? oh absolutely
1: absolutely and um so the um uh, the, the storyline that I think is, um, is most salient here is, um, cardiovascular disease. Um, and although, you know, back pain, pregnancy, you know, the idea that, you know, we tell patients that rest is best, um, mm-hmm. is, is historically how, what we do, um, with most health conditions, um, you know, when in doubt, Tell the person to rest. That's, that's kind of been the case for many different chronic diseases. And, um, in heart disease, you know, uh, uh, you know, some of the, the most amazing work was done in, in your neck of the woods in Scandinavia, um, in Sweden in particular. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's, um, amazing studies that were done at Karolinska, just simply getting patients to sit up. Um, and if we got people sitting in, in chairs quicker, um, then, you know, it was stressing the heart just enough that people that, you know, men, it was mostly men being studied were better able to get out of the hospital quicker, which, um, pleased the hospital administrators. Um, and so, uh, you know, my mentor, um, Henry Blackburn was, uh, instrumental in some of those very, very early studies. Um, and so literally that was sort of the genesis of moving us in the direction from, you know, the stepwise direction from, you know, rest is best and lie down, you know, rest and lie down to exercise and cardiac rehabilitation. Literally the first step was have them sit up. That literally was the first step. And um, and it took decades to get from that to what we now recommend, which is um, you should be uh, recommending exercise soon after a cardiac event or a cardiac procedure and getting somebody into a cardiac rehabilitation program as soon as possible. One of the things that I think is important to point out based on your question is that that required not just a, a shift and a growth in the scientific evidence base. It required a shift in the, um, uh, the culture of that disease around that disease. So, uh, today, if you ask the average person with a high school education in a westernized country if exercise is good for their heart, they're probably going to say yes, because there has been a culture shift, so people know that exercise is good for heart disease, whether you have it or you're trying to prevent it. If, on the other hand, you say, hey, your Aunt Betty has bladder cancer, should she be exercising? They'll probably say no. They'll probably say, no, she should be resting with a blanket over her knees. Um, and, you know, it's hard enough to get through this treatment. It's hard enough to survive cancer. So, um, so we have a culture issue and we need to figure out how to, um, how to shift that culture because, um, you know, I think that, um, many patients and survivors would be very surprised, especially those that are less well educated, would be very surprised to learn that the evidence base is extremely robust to show us that patients who exercise before, during, and after their cancer treatment are much more able to survive their disease and they have a higher quality of life and better function. They're better able to return to work. Uh, You know, there are a variety of mechanisms for this, um, but, um, you know, the the benefits are are broad and, and long lasting. And so, um, how do you change that culture and gee, maybe that might be one of the reasons why I agree to podcasts, So,
0: mm. and, and where do you think we are in that cultural shift? I think now there's a consensus among researchers that exercise is good. Is, is it already within the clinicians? Uh, it's probably not yet with the public. Where, where are we in this culture change in your opinion?
1: Yeah, I think that, um, uh, that the researchers, uh, know, and I think, you know, I think we're there with the researchers. Um, I think that the, uh, clinicians, um, I think that there is variability. There's it's sort of an interesting question you've asked because the American uh, Society of Clinical Oncology, um, did a, uh, a survey of clinicians to ask, um, you know, what is important? You know, is it important for your patients? To um, you know, eat well, um, maintain a good, uh, healthy weight, uh, exercise, you know, healthy behaviors, and uh, I believe that the I don't remember the exact number, but it was near eighty percent said that yes, exercise is something that patients should be doing before, during, and after their treatment. But that might be a biased sample. Um, in that, um, who's going to answer that survey? Is the doctor who thinks that? uh, exercise and healthy behaviors is nonsense going to answer the survey in the first place. So, hmm, you know, so I can tell you, I live and work in a relatively rural setting in Pennsylvania in the U S and, um, uh, at my institution, I would say about 60 to 70% of clinicians are on board And when I talk to clinicians in the community who are not in academic medical centers, I'm gonna guess it's more like 40%. So I think that there's variability in um, how much this research and the research findings um, have disseminated to the clinicians. Um, When it comes to the patients, I think that well-educated patients that get themselves on the internet and the ones who, you know, are looking at what we jokingly call Dr. Google, you know, and want to know everything about their disease, I think they know. And I think they understand. Um, and I can tell you that um, the less well educated um, and or rural um, uh, patients, um, uh, low-income patients, uh, are much less likely to understand, A, that it's safe, and B, um, that it would be good for them. And Um, so, so therein we have this sort of catch-22, right? So if you have people who are lower income, lower resource, lower education, where are they going to be and who's going to be treating them? It's much more likely to be in the community setting where the oncologists are less likely to have gone in. So they're not hearing it from their clinician. And we have evidence, there is published evidence that a lack of saying anything about exercise to cancer patients While they're undergoing treatment and afterwards is taken by cancer patients as not just permission, but a mandate to be sedentary. So we need those, we need to educate those clinicians. (laughs) So figuring that out is, is a, is a puzzle.
0: Yeah. So still quite a bit of work to do. What do you see as the biggest obstacles and how, how to overcome those in this, this change?
1: Yeah. So, um uh I am um the founder of of a initiative that is interested in this exact area. Um it's called Moving Through Cancer. It's the same name as my my book, my second book. And um uh we have, you know, five agenda items and one of them is is stakeholder awareness and engagement. And what we mean by that is exactly what we've just been discussing, you know, how do we get more clinicians bought in? How do we get the patients to understand the value of exercise before, during, and after their treatment. And, um, uh, and you know, so, um, uh, I it's one of the reasons I wrote the popular press book, um, because now there is a book on, you know, on the shelf in bookstores and in, you know, on Amazon, um, that is, uh, you know, intended to be written for the person who has been diagnosed with cancer and their you know, their brain might be a little foggy right now, frankly. Um, so it's it's written at a very easy reading level. And it's it's written with the program being very, very simplistic, um, on purpose, um, in order to um help people to get through their treatment. So that was, you know, item one. Item two, um, we recently acquired some funding to do a, a stakeholder awareness campaign. And we have developed an infographic and a and an accompanying brochure. We're working on the graphics and trying to uh, fix it um, and make it, you know, exactly what we want it to be. Um, and then the question is, you know, how do we distribute it in a way that that um, gets it to the clinicians and the patients who most need it? And, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, um, you know, have you ever seen sort of videos or pictures of a baby that doesn't want the food, you know, and they're kind of, you know, I mean, how do we, how do we deliver this in a way that is um makes it easy for them and makes it palatable so one of the things that i've been interested in um, that we haven't done yet but i'm very very interested in doing is the development of a um of a a CME a you know continuing me- medical education um uh webinar that is very very simple you know that takes them an hour and would allow them to check a box for, you know, they have to do continuing medical education credits. They have to, right, in order to keep their licensure. Um, so if we could provide something and provide it for free, we need to develop it, and we need to get it um, accredited by the AMA and, you know, European sources, you know, all over. Um, and But then if we can, you know, um, uh, publicize it, um, then, you know, can we do kind of an exercise in Cancer 101? Um, that makes it easy for the clinicians to see, um, the benefits to their patients. So simply telling their patients, you know, it would be okay if you did some exercise or it would be great if you did some exercise. So how would they talk to their patients about it? What would they say? We've actually developed something that is, um, a, um, a much longer course um, that, uh, is called active conversations that is, uh, based in motivational interviewing and, um, answers the question, but I don't know what to say to my patient. Right. And so, um, we've partnered with an organization in the UK called moving medicine and we have this beautiful course and there will be, uh, CMEs and it's not expensive and we'd like to get some sponsorship for this. But what we've recognized is that we kind of went to step two without going to step one there, right? Because when we try to ask clinicians to do this course, the only ones that want to do it are the ones that have already.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in this show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes. So be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.